church and welcome neighbors. This is Pastor Michael and I'm excited to take the next step with you in our series. I wanted to start with uh, just an observation about something that's kind of difficult to do. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had to say that you were sorry when you actually weren't very sorry at all? Um, and the thing that brings this to mind for me is, is that oftentimes we have to try and teach children how to say that they're sorry, how to, how to be considerate of other people when really they're just focused on themselves. And um, oftentimes we're encouraging and trying to teach kids that, that the actions that they have, the behaviors that they have, the injuries that they incur on other people actually hurt other people pretty deeply. And oftentimes when kids are being taught how to say they're sorry, it's really hard for them to look past how the situation affects them and see how it affects somebody else. So if, uh, for instance, I was talking with one of my boys this week and he kept saying how sorry he was, how sorry he was, how sorry he was that he got caught how sorry he was that there were consequences to his actions, how sorry he was that he was missing out on going to do something fun because he had hurt his brother. And trying to redirect that conversation to get him to consider how his, his behavior had affected his brother as opposed to how it had affected him and to try to get him to a place where his heart was actually genuinely sorry for the pain that he had incurred uh, it's like herding cats. You can't get them all corralled in the same direction. So, um, it could be really, really easy for me to just say, oh, that's an example for my kids. And it's not, uh, not anything that we grownups deal with, but, uh, we also played this game too. There have been many times where, uh, we're saying sorry or trying to say sorry because we know it's the right thing to do, but not necessarily because we are genuinely sorry for the, the pain that we've incurred. And as we zoom in, um, as we're, we're taking apart this, this cycle of sin, this sin cycle, and zooming in on each section of the cycle to try and grasp on each component and how we can break this secular pattern in our hearts and in our minds, um, and so the, the pattern is this. I'll just remind you real quick. It's security, sin, slavery, supplication, and salvation. And we've been through the first couple of those. And today we're going to turn our attention to the um, and zoom in on supplication and, and have a conversation about what it is to say that we're sorry, to say we're sorry to God and to say that we're sorry to the people that we've injured. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 10. Um, so I invite you to turn there, navigate there, however it is that you'd like to read along with me. Um, but, and uh, let's go ahead and read it together. I'm going to be in Judges chapter 10. And I'm going to be beginning in verse 6. And this is going to sound familiar to you, but we are several chapters later. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. 
For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and, the, and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And I'm going to pause there before we go any further. Um, this is, again, a kind of a discouraging passage to read, and it sounds pretty familiar to us. There's some common themes that we've picked up on as we've read through the book of Judges. And even though this sounds uh, similar, this is actually the beginning of the sixth time that the book of Judges describes this nation of Israel as going through this sin cycle. Um, it's been about 85 years since, we, since, we, uh, since the verses that we talked about last time. It's been about 85 years. Um, and so just so that we don't lose sight of where it is that we're going, I want to give you our big idea at the beginning here. I want you to see what it is that we're going to be pulling from this text. Um, and, and hopefully that'll help us to stay focused in on what it is that we need to know. So the big idea is that our deliverance rests on God's mercy, not on the quality of our repentance. Our deliverance rests on God's mercy, not the quality of our repentance. And so as we are beginning to dissect this text, as we are beginning to look deep into our own hearts and see some of the things that are there, I'd invite you to pause and pray with me. Would you do that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For those of you who have really keen eyes and are observant, you notice something in this passage as we read it. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashraf. We've heard that before. That's not a new refrain. Um, but here things get expanded. The gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. See, where in, earlier in Judges, when we were in the spiral up here, um, they, were, they were infatuated with the gods of Canaan. But now it seems like because they are on a trade route, anybody who crosses through their path, they just kind of pick up their gods. They've, they've created this big collection of idols that they're worshiping. They've completely forgotten the God who brought them up out of Egypt and have now begun to just play buffet to whichever God happens to be walking down the road is the one that they're going to pick up and they're going to give honor and glory to. Um, and they've, they've created this, um, this collection of idols that they're worshiping. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. 
So they not only collected all these other idols, but that collection completely distracted them from what it, what it was that God had actually asked them to do. He, they didn't worship him. And the result is expanded too. It's not just that they have expanded their collection of deities that they're worshiping. Um, the, the pain and the suffering has been expanded as well. It says that they crushed, they were crushed and oppressed the people that year. And for 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. So, so the Israelites across the Jordan, or what we would think of away from the main body of the land of Israel, um, they, were, they were really oppressed. But then we see that the Ammonites then crossed the Jordan and started to fight with people in the mainland too. So up until now, as we've gone through, and if you have read on your own some of the different uh, narratives about specific judges, those conquests are actually more regional. So the, 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 an invading army would come through and, and would be pretty regionally focused, uh, with the exception of the Midianites. But here it seems like the whole nation is under the boot of another country, of the Ammonites. They're oppressed. They're fought against Judah and Benjamin and against Ephraim. And Israel is severely distressed. And if you're like me, there's a question that comes to mind. You, we have a really clear picture here of, um, of Israel forsook God. They went and, and worshipped other deities and they forgot Yahweh who delivered them. And so God allows this judgment to come. And so if you're like me, there's a question that rises in your mind that asks... Well, is every time something bad happens, is that a judgment from God? And it's a, a bit of a complicated question in that sometimes God tells us what he does, but he doesn't always tell us why he's doing what he does. I can leave a couple of times in scripture where um, Jesus looks at a person and says that when everybody else around them is asking like, okay, so this guy is blind. Obviously he did something to deserve to be blind or he's been blind his whole life. So maybe his parents were the ones who sinned and God has judged this guy because of his parents' sin. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, the, his, his blindness isn't the result of sin. It's so that God could be glorified in healing him on this day. And then Jesus heals him. So we have a clear instance of a time where there is something that everybody around considers judgment from God, but God himself. Um, and so <clears throat> there's this interesting dynamic that we've skirted around in our conversation about judges, but it's time that we address it specifically. I started in, in our first conversation about this book together. I wanted to take you all the way back to the beginning and show you the family line uh, of how we got to the nation of Israel from the family of Israel, from the guy named Abram. Because I wanted you to see that what God is doing in history here is with a very specific set of people that he's worked in a very unique way to create a nation from a single family. And he sets them up with their own constitution. And now he had set them up with their own land that they would live in. And it's because of their... Um, unfaithfulness to God and the things that he set up for them specifically that now God is judging them. There's a difference between national sin and personal sin.
God can judge things on national scale, whether or not we personally are involved in the sin. And so how do we know if something that's going on in our world is a judgment from God? How do we know if a global pandemic is a judgment from God? Or how do we know that, that, that riots across the country are a judgment from God? Well, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't know unless God tells us. Here we can say it very clearly about Israel and Judges because God is articulating that is what was happening. These people were rejecting me, and so I was rejecting them. And we have passage in the New Testament where we say, where Jesus clearly says, it's not because of the sin, it's because I was going to do something specific here. And so we don't know unless God tells us. So how do we respond when we see national and international crises? Does it even cross our mind that it could be a judgment from God? Now, we're going to go further into this conversation, but there's, there's a, a dynamic of national sin and personal sin. And our first reaction usually is to say, well, this must be a national issue because I'm not a person who is, is sinning in that way. And it just leads me to ask the question as we're looking at this, <laughs> there were individuals who were worshiping these false gods that now God is judging as a nation. So there's a personal dynamic to national sin. And are we too quick to overlook our sin? Not are we too quick to seek God's forgiveness for it, but are we too quick to just overlook it, to say that it's not that big of a deal? In, in, in the culture, the circles that I grew up in, we, we had this refrain, I'm not, nobody's perfect, I'm not perfect, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And while I think that that's true, I think that sometimes when we articulate it in that way, it can be so blasé, it can be so um, fickle that we actually end up giving ourselves excuses to sin. By saying that I'm not perfect, we, 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 we give ourselves permission and license to sin. But we've already seen that Jesus delivers us from our slavery to sin even when we cannot see clearly. So our own perspective oftentimes gives us the benefit of the doubt where we not, may or may not actually deserve that. So we need Jesus' perspective on our sin to do that. <clears throat> Jesus says real clearly in, in, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, he says, look, like I get that you can see sin all over the place. I, I can tell that you guys are really into identifying problems in another person's life. But let me just encourage you, before you take that speck out of your brother's eye, to pull the log out of your own eye. He says, when you, when you get into a situation where you're, where you're identifying sin in people, before you take that step of trying to correct the sin in someone else, you should take a few moments at least and be reflective about what elements of the sin that I'm identifying in somebody else actually is within my own heart. What sin am I responsible of? <laughs> it bothers me and other people oftentimes more when it's something that my own heart can't sort out. 
And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, not our repentance that leads God to be kind to us. So are we too quick to overlook our own sin? Do we say, no, 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 that couldn't be me. Or do we pause and say, yeah, that, that could be in me. Well, the people said, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Um, but let's look at what God says in response in verse 11. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. So the people have cried out to God and God says, look, I have saved you. I delivered you out of Egypt and I delivered you from all of these other people. And every time I save you, you turn and, and worship other gods. Started this, we started this cycle kind of spinning up at the top and now we've degraded and the sixth time around, we're down pretty low where God says, Look, you've chosen what gods you're going to serve, so why don't you go ahead and serve them? Let those gods that you've chosen to serve save you. Stop calling to me, because you're not following me. It's hard to hear God say that. He has every right to. But it's hard for us to read it. And I want you to feel the weight of what God's saying to the people that he brought out of Egypt, to the people that he has delivered, to the people that he has cared for and nurtured. He says, yeah, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. You guys have made your decision. Go on. So what, what does this mean? Like, they called out to God and God said, No. That doesn't sound very Christian of God. Knowing the right answer does not mean that we do the right thing. Saying the right words does not mean that our heart is ready to surrender. Saying we're sorry doesn't mean we mean that we're sorry. Sometimes it means we're sorry we got caught. Genuine repentance. So we have here, the people are saying the right words. They're talking to God. They're saying, hey, we're sorry. We shouldn't have done this. And, 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 and God's saying, yeah, I don't, I don't buy it anymore. I have saved you. And every time I save you, you turn around and you go and serve other gods. So, yeah, that's it. But genuine repentance goes deeper than reciting the proper magic words. And it persists longer than an emotional tide that's, that's, that's just washing out and then coming back in and washing out and coming back in. It's not about the words that we say. It's about the heart that we say them with. And we know this 
there's a big difference between saying, I love you, and I love you. It's not the words that we say, it's the heart that we say them from. And here Israel is learning that. The genuine repentance isn't just about saying the right word. It isn't just about making a decision and walking down an aisle. It's about making a lifestyle change and a heart of gratitude that says, you have delivered me from my sin. You have delivered me from my sin. So I then will worship you and you alone. You alone are worthy of my affection and my attention, God. One author, uh, Dale Ralph Davis, puts it this way. He said, There is a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. Are you afraid when we come to God, are we afraid that we're just going to lose the benefits of, of the blessings that he gives us? Or are we afraid that we have damaged the relationship with him and we will lose him? Are we fighting for God's blessing and forgetting God's character? But I said at the beginning that our deliverance rests on God's mercy. Like, it's up to God whether or not he chooses to deliver us, whether he chooses... And that has always been the case. It seems like it's in really clear focus here because God's saying, yeah, I'm not going to give you any mercy this time. But it has always been the case that our deliverance rests on God's mercy and not on the quality of our repentance. These people have repented and it's kind of a crummy repentance. They've said, oh God, we forgot to serve you. And God said, yeah, and I forgot to save you this time. Go worship the other gods. The quality of repentance wasn't great. It's not that we cry or say the right words to God that moves him. Our, our deliverance rests on his mercy. If we, if we have any kindness from God at all, it is because he's given it to us, not because we deserve it. Which I want to connect this idea with the one that we were looking at previously and just ask, if we're too quick to overlook our own personal sin, and there is national judgment of sin from God, what sin do we need to take responsibility for in our community? What sin do we need to take responsibility for in our community? This We have here in Judges 10 a bad example of repentance and a bad example of what we've called in the sin cycle supplication, Asking God for help. This is a bad example. Don't just say the right things and not have a heart attitude. Um, but we, there's a principle in scripture that it's not necessary that we have personally sinned in order to identify with the sin of our community. Though we, I would say, we shouldn't be quick to assume that the this personal sin isn't there. We don't necessarily have to have personal sin in order to confess and identify the sin of our community, whether that be our city or whether our neighborhood or whether our state or our country. Like We can see sin in our country and we can weep and grieve as though we had committed it ourselves, whether we have or not. There's a bunch of examples of this in scripture. One of them 
um, shortly after this in Jonah, in the book of Jonah in chapter 3, this wicked city of Nineveh who doesn't know God at all repents. They, they all as a city repent of their sin. Um, we have Daniel praying for the people in Daniel chapter 9. And as he prays for the sin of the people, he uses we words. We have sinned against you. God have mercy on us. Daniel didn't have the sin. He, he wasn't a part of the sin that was going on, but he prayed as though he did. Nehemiah does the same thing in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Stephen, I think, does this in Acts chapter 7 as he is preaching. He is using we words. We are the people of Israel. We are responsible for how we talk with God. And, and I think Paul, to such a degree, does this in, in Romans chapter 9, that he says, I wish that the people of Israel would repent and that I would be condemned. I would rather that I went to hell and that my people were saved, but I don't get to make that choice, and so I just serve my people. We need not have personally sinned to identify with the sin of our community, so what sin do we need to take responsibility for in our community? When somebody looks you in the eye and says there's sin in your life, if your first response is, now that's not me, then you're deceived. There's no reason why you should assume that you are without sin. It's arrogant to think that. And I only say that because I know the one who forgives it. Like I, can, I am comfortable pushing you to face your sin because I know that in the time that you face your sin, I can also point you to your Savior who forgives it. I can push you towards addressing racism in your heart because I know that the one who created all things has, has offered to forgive you for those things and to bring us and give us a ministry of reconciliation. What sin do we need to take responsibility for in our community? What pride do we need to lay aside in order to come humbly before our God so that he will hear our prayers? Because he didn't listen to Israel when they talked to him. Let's continue reading. In verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. I'm not sure they've had heart change. Oh, but wait, they, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilgal. And the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, was the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So I'm going to pause us there. I'm actually going to stop us there. That'll be the last passage that we read today. <clears throat> the people do eventually put away their gods. And this is such an interesting phrase. <clears throat> 
the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. He saw their misery. He saw their suffering and he was impatient over it. God doesn't delight in seeing people suffer. And our deliverance rests on his mercy. But understand that he also holds the right to withhold his mercy. Our deliverance rests on God's mercy and not the quality of our repentance. But it seems like they do actually repent in a way. They have heart change, life change, at least temporarily. And so they gather up their army. Everybody comes together. The enemy is gathered and now Israel is gathered. But they look around and they go, we don't have anybody to lead us. Who's going to lead us to this? Lead us. And Jephthah was a really strong guy. He was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. What does it say about us if we're gonna if we're gonna fly our banner behind the son of a prostitute? Like, what does that say about the kind of people that we are? That we would follow somebody who is wicked? That we would that we would let them lead us into battle? Sometimes when the nation's in sin, they don't get to pick. Uh, leaders that have the best character to lead them forward. But Jeff is kind of an interesting guy. Um, his family drove him out when they realized that he could get some of the inheritance. And he was a strong guy. And he lived kind of on the outskirts of society. And other, other people would come and uh, other dudes would gather around Jephthah, and they kind of made this like rogue army, this kind of rough thuggigans guys. Um, and he's going to be the next one that God uses to lead Israel. But it's hard for him because he's been rejected by society that now needs him to deliver them. And there's a lot of parallels we could draw from this, but I want to bring our conversation to a close and just ask, will we work on behalf of people who reject us? That's Jephthah's call here. The nations rejected him and said, your mom was a prostitute. We don't really want to follow you. We don't want to, we don't want to have you part of our community. But yet when we're in need, we're going to come and ask for your help. Will we work on behalf of people who reject us? Or do we need them to like us in order for us to serve them? I'll just say that this is an expectation that you should have if you're going to follow Jesus' example. Jesus came and was despised and rejected by those he came to save. But that the people rejected him did not invalidate the goodness of the message he came to preach. Will we work on behalf of the people who reject us? Will we serve them and love them well in spite of how they treat us? That's the higher call of Jesus. And he invites us to follow him in it. But it begins with getting real about our sin and getting real about crying to him and leaning on him and him alone for help salvation and deliverance from our sin. And our deliverance rests on God's mercy, not on the quality of our repentance. Mm -hmm.